Good to see you here tonight. How many of you got stuck in 35 coming this way? And the ones that got stuck aren't here yet. They had it down to one and a half. They had it down to almost half a lane. Oh, it was painful. I said, Lord, I got to stay in the spirit. I'm teaching tonight. All right. It's so good to see all of you. And uh, are you ready to get in the book of Revelation? You ready to do it? All right, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight that Jesus gave us this book. And Lord, if you gave it to us, you didn't give it to us to mystify us or cause us to say, I can't understand it and put it down. You gave us a prophetic book so that we would not be taken unaware, so that we would understand the times. And so, Lord, tonight we ask you to speak to us, minister to us, and, and Lord, help us to understand the Word of God. And you breathe a prayer with me, church, and say, Lord, in Jesus' name, open my ears and open my eyes to see what Jesus has for us tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell them, God heard that prayer. You're going to be blessed tonight. Amen. Amen. You know, I, as I was getting ready for tonight and going through the, the book of Revelation, um, it occurred to me that, that one of the great benefits of the Revelation is that um, we can see that there is another world that we can't see. And that world we can't see is, is acting upon the world we can see. And so it, it, it's a very powerful thing to, that there is, a, there is a, an invisible, a fourth dimension. And that fourth dimension is causing things to happen in this dimension that we can see. And yet most people don't understand that, don't realize that. But what John is going to experience as we go through this tonight is he is going to be given a vision about this world, then he's going to be taken up into heaven and shown the other world. Another thing I noticed is that what is happening on this earth does not negatively affect what's happening in that world. In other words, they're worshiping there while hell on earth is happening here. And so it's just, to me, powerful that the kingdom of heaven is not impacted by this earth in the sense that um, it doesn't experience pain. It doesn't experience sorrow. It doesn't experience um, grief. But there is joy and there is worship in heaven all the time. Matter of fact, if you don't like worship, you better learn how. Because I'm telling you, you're going to be way out of place in heaven because that's about all that happens up there a lot of the time is worship. And no, you don't get bored. And so, anyway, let's just start tonight. Uh, if you got your book, we're in page 91 in the book. And we're moving right along. As a matter of fact, after tonight, we've got six chapters to go and we're done with the book of Revelation. But we're on page 91 in the book, but chapter 14 in the Revelation. Now, last time we looked in chapter 13 at the rise of the Antichrist, and we also saw his sidekick, the false prophet. And we were introduced to the mark of the beast, and the mark being 666. We talked about all of that last time. Now, chapter 14, 
begins with John being taken up into heaven again, where once again he sees the 144,000 we first met in chapter 7. 144,000 Jewish evangelists covering the globe during the tribulation. And they have the name of the Father on their foreheads. Revelation 14, verse 1, just starting in this new chapter, John writes, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So you got Antichrist wanting you to take a mark on your forehead that'll damn you, and then you've got God putting a mark on the foreheads of these 144,000. So the Great Tribulation is a time where people are being marked on their forehead for good or for bad. And again, I really believe that has to do with your thought life because your forehead is indicative of your mind, your thought life. And I think anybody that takes the mark of the beast is essentially saying, he has captured my thoughts. I have given him uh, myself. He's got me. I believe in him. And so then you're marked. So the mark, to me, is an after-the-fact event, uh, after you've already decided, well, there's my truth, there's my guy, and I'm going to worship him, and you take the mark. The mark meaning your mind has been captured. Now, this 144,000 is the seal mentioned in Revelation 7-3 that we've already covered. Now they're in heaven these 144,000, for they likely die a martyr's death when Satan, the dragon, makes war with the remnant. Revelations 12, verse 7. Now, then John witnesses an explosion of unparalleled worship. Here we go. Verse 2, and I heard a sound from heaven. Now, he's looking for ways to describe it. So he says, it's like the roar of mighty ocean waves. How many of you have ever been at, 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 the, at the seashore when the, the waves were really rolling in, that massive roar, that sound. Do you remember that? Can you imagine a worship session that sounds like that? That's what he's saying. He said, it was like the roar of, of mighty ocean waves this, this worship time or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. So there's three analogies. It's like, it's like a mighty ocean, uh, it's like thunder, it's like a multitude of harpists all playing the harp at the same time. That's what it sounded like in heaven. How many of you would like to be in that worship session, really? Powerful. Now, these majestic sounds are none other than the greatest choir ever assembled. It's the song of those who have been redeemed from the great tribulation. They are the fruit of of the preaching of the 144,000. John seems to write about this uh, ecstatically. He says in verse 3, this great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, he is particularly struck by their walk of purity. It stands out to John. In verse 4 and 5, he says, let me tell you about these worshipers. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever He goes. 
They've been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies, and they are without blame. Now, this doesn't mean that they've never married, but it means that they are pure and they're holy through Christ and in their spiritual character. You know what? Let me just say, this is describing what a normal Christian should look like. I mean, we're so used to subnormal Christianity that we read about these, these people and we go, wow, look at, look at where they are. Look at the level of holiness. But you know what? Everything I just read to you that John listed is the way Christians ought to be walking, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're like me, you say, Jesus, help me. Amen? Amen. Because he can get us there now. These, these men are pure through Christ and in their spiritual character. They have been undefiled by immorality. Now, John is about to see six angels. You know, another thing about the Revelation, you talk about the activity of angels. You talk about angels everywhere. You talk about mighty, powerful angels being involved in the end times. Angels are involved. You know, you read about people who say, oh, yeah, an angel appeared to me in my room and we had a little dance. No, that was no angel. You did not dance with an angel. Because if you saw a real angel, you are on your face, trembling before God, asking for mercy. Amen. If you see a Bible angel. So John next observes six angels, all with unique messages of warning and judgment. And let's begin by looking at the first three angels and their message. Here's the first angel. This angel's message, this is amazing, is a gospel message. The eternal good news. Verses 6 and 7, it says, And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying what, everybody? The eternal good news. To proclaim to the people who belong to what? This world. To every, now notice this is worldwide, every nation, tribe, language, and people. And look what the angel says. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. This angel is, is spreading throughout the world, and I believe he represents a move of the Spirit where the message is going to be, don't worship Antichrist, worship the one who made the world. Worship creator God. So get this, church, right in the middle of the most horrific time earth has ever seen, the mercy of God reaches out to the lost. Isn't God good? See, people think, well, in the tribulation, it's just going to be everybody's going to hell and everybody's lost. No, there's going to be a move of God. There's going to be evangelism happening during the tribulation. And here's an angel taking the good news to the entire world. Amen. Can you say with me that God's a merciful God? Oh, man. Now we got a second angel. And it says this angel carries a message to Babylon. Revelation 14, verse 8, Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon has fallen. That great city has fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Now let me tell you about Babylon. Babylon represents both the city, the system, and the regime of the final times. It's likely both a physical place and a spiritual condition of rebellion against God. That's Babylon. 
Now let's talk about Babylon for a minute. Babylon first appears in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11 where we find Nimrod leading the charge and building the Tower of Babel, which in the Hebrew is Babylon. So Babylon first appears in Genesis 11 under this wicked man named Nimrod. Now we know what happened when they started to build the Tower of Babel, right? Here they are. They're unified. Even God admitted that that if we don't stop them, the Godhead talking to each other, said if we don't stop them, They're going to succeed in building this tower because they are unified in their evil effort. Unity works with good or bad, and they were unified. So you know what God did. He confused their language so that all of a sudden one guy holding out a brick to another guy couldn't understand what he was saying. And there was a lot of say what going on. All right? What? 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 And all of a sudden, nobody could understand. Can you imagine what that would be like? Some of you feel like you're that way in your house right now, especially if you have teenagers. <laughs> but, but all of a sudden, nobody could understand anybody. Can you imagine this? That would really run a number on you, wouldn't it? Uh, so this is what God did. He confused their language, and they did not succeed. Now, the Tower of Babel represented pride and rebellion against the will of God. God had commanded Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's Genesis 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, God had wanted Noah's descendants after the flood to spread throughout the entire earth and populate it. And the Tower of Babel was a direct defiance of that command by centralizing or seeking to centralize the population in one place. And so God judged it. He said, I didn't tell you to centralize. I told you to spread out. I told you to go and repopulate the entire earth. So this was an act of rebellion when they were building this tower and centralizing the people. God judged it. Now, as for the place, Babylon, Ancient Babylon was located where present-day southern Iraq now is. Isn't that amazing how we're still, right now, we've got Iraq out there, and we've got Egypt out there, and we've got all these places that exist, Iran, all these places that exist in the Bible still there. The Bible predicts that Iraq will flourish and once again become a major city on the world stage. And I'm going to talk more about this next week. And it could be that the Babylon John sees is that revived city where the infamous Iraq war has just taken place. We'll see. But God said Iraq's going to flourish again. And if God said it, it's going to happen. Now, that's two angels. Here comes the third angel. This angel's message is a dire warning. Once again, he sternly advises against accepting the mark of the beast. To receive it is to perish eternally. Now, church, I want you to hear what I'm about to read because we have people going around in our day who are saying there's no hell. God's not going to send anybody to hell. You don't need to worry about hell. There are pastors who are on television who have openly said, we won't talk about sin and we won't talk about hell. And I find that to be one of the saddest things I've ever heard because if you don't know that you're sick, how are you going to get well? And if you don't know the antidote, how are you going to miss hell? 
But he says, we won't talk about hell and we won't talk about sin. All right? If I'm in that church, I, I'm not able to get out fast enough. Because I want the truth. Now, listen to the truth. Jeff didn't say this. Jesus told this to John. Then a third angel followed them. Verses 9 through 11. A third angel followed them shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts the mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath. Now listen to this next part. Verse 10. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And this next part is so hard for me to read, but I'm going to read it. And they will have no relief day or night. Did you catch that? Now, to me, if I'm in pain, i got to believe that there is relief somewhere down the road. But, folks, we just read here about hell. Jesus said this, and he said, uh, those who worship the beast, those who reject me, those who reject grace and go into the tribulation and worship the Antichrist and worship his image and receive the mark, notice the words, forever and ever will be their torment, and they will have no relief, no, not in the daytime or in the night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. I can't tell you how difficult it is for me to wrap my mind around what I just read. But you know what? I believe it's true because I know the Bible is the word of God. And so I accept it by faith. And this is the fate of people who reject Christ. That's why we're always evangelizing. That's why we're always reaching out to the lost. That's why I will never not talk about sin I will never not talk about hell. I will never not warn people that they are eternal beings because if you're not an eternal being, how can you be tormented forever and forever? No relief, day or night. Ages upon the ages. Now, the Holy Spirit, thankfully, delivers a word of encouragement. I'm ready for one right about now after reading that. He, he gives a word of encouragement to those who will belong to the Lord in the Great Tribulation. Verses 12 and 13. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. Everybody say with me, I'm blessed if I die in the Lord. He didn't say those who die, he said those who die in the Lord. If you die in the Lord, you are blessed indeed. And the works that you have done in his name are going to follow you into rewards in the world to come. But folks, we're, we're reading here about eternity, eternity at stake, what is really on the line when you are confronted with Jesus Christ, what's really on the line? We just read it. That's what's on the line. John is about to behold a great reaping of souls, both to eternal life and damnation. 
And you know what? We're about to see that second chances are running out. So right now, we're, we're going to go to chapter 9 in your book, and it's titled, The Last Three Angels and the Seven Bowls. Now, in the closing verses of chapter 14, we're wrapping up chapter 14 in Revelations. The Lord Jesus Christ is seen seated on a cloud. It says in verse 14, Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, that golden crown represents royal authority. And the sickle represents, in this context, not a good harvest, but the harvest of judgment. Everybody say with me, judgment is coming. I mean, isn't it time to, if you're going to walk with Jesus, get tight with him now. Because, folks, judgment is coming. I mean, this couldn't be more clear. Judgment is coming. The sad thing is you don't hear that from most churches anymore. In the West, why not? Because it's coming. What is about to take place with the appearance of the fourth angel is the answer to the prayers of the martyred saints who have asked for vengeance on their persecutors. You remember that? And here it is, verse 15. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, and that would be Jesus. And he says to Jesus, swing the sickle, For the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. Verse 16, so the one sitting on the cloud, Jesus, swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. Now, this is the fulfillment of Matthew 13, verses 40 to 43, where Jesus said this. Verse 40, just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. So this is talking about the reaping of the wicked. Look at verse 42. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. And listen to what he said now. Anybody with ears to hear better perk up and listen. That was the revised Wickwire version. (laughs) He's he's saying, if you've got ears to hear, you better hear what I'm saying. There's going to be a resurrection not only of the righteous but of the wicked. And there's going to be a judgment of the wicked. And when he puts that sickle in, that is the Lord Jesus, he's going to reap the whole earth, every wicked ungodly, Christ-rejecting person is going to be reaped with this sickle. He says, listen to what I'm saying to you. It's the Messiah doing the reaping. It says the one sitting on the cloud. So we've got a harvest here. Now a fifth angel speaks. And the fifth angel appears from the heavenly temple also ready to reap a harvest. Verse 17, after that, Another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And on the heels of the fifth angel's appearance, a sixth angel appears. And look what happens. Verse 18, then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, the fifth angel. Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. 
the fire over which the sixth angel has power is no doubt the fiery wrath of the end time. So the sixth angel, with power to destroy with fire, instructs the fifth angel to thrust in his sharp sickle. Now, what are the vines of the earth? I believe the vines of the earth represent the false vine. Remember when Jesus said in John 15, he said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, and you are the branches. And if you want to bear fruit, you need to abide in me, the vine. And if you abide in the vine, then whatever is in the vine is going to come forth in you. That's how you bring forth fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith, all of these th things come from abiding in the vine, and whatever is in the vine flows into the branches. But it's also true of wicked vines. And no doubt the vine the angel is addressing is the false vine of the Antichrist. Those who have followed him are about to be judged. It's the end time harvest where second chances are gone. When the fifth angel thrusts in his sickle, the Lord Jesus will tread the winepress of divine wrath. The prophet Joel wrote this about that treading of the winepress. Joel 3, 12 to 14. Joel says, let the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on them all. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread the grapes, for the winepress is full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. Then he says, thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. Now what's the valley of decision? It's none other than the valley of Armageddon where the mother of all wars is going to take place. Now, I want you to keep in mind the picture of treading the grapes is Old Testament symbolism. As grapes in the wine press, you know that they would have the wine press and the grapes were put in it, and, and then the man would step in and he would begin stepping on the grapes and crushing them in the wine press to get the grape juice. And God uses that as a picture of when Jesus comes to judge the wicked. They will be placed essentially in like a wine press, and Jesus will crush the wicked. Now, I know this is not a jump up and shout message, but folks, this is what's going to happen. John is next given a brief preview of the War of Armageddon that we're going to look at more closely in chapter 19. But here's the first sobering description of the War of Armageddon. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. There's the picture. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Can you imagine that? The war of Armageddon is going to be the war of all wars. My understanding is that Napoleon stood at the Valley of Megiddo and not trying to be scriptural, he said the world could fight here. And he didn't know he was being prophetic because the world will fight there in the Valley of Megiddo. So horrific will the carnage be that the blood will flow like a river up to a horse's bridle, which is about four and a half feet deep, for almost 200 miles outside the city of Jerusalem. Everybody say amen or oh me. 
I, I talked to my mother last week. She's probably watching. I, I talked to her after last Wednesday night. She said, Jeffrey, you're scaring me to death. And I said, Mother, you're saved. And she said, I know, but it's still scary. I said, well, then go tell somebody about Jesus. Mother, hi. Bless you. She's watching every Wednesday night. And, and I understand, this is not uh, 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 a... Uh, you know, jump up and clap and shout and break into a worship session. kind of. But this is what God told us. If you will study it and understand it, then there is a blessing that comes with it. He does not want us taken unaware. He wants us to be aware and to understand the times. Jesus told the people of his day, he said, you can tell when it's going to rain, you can tell when it's going to shine, but you have no discernment over the times. And he wants us to understand the times. So here we go. Now, it, is, it does seem incomprehensible that there could be that much blood and that horrific a scene, but it's going to happen. If the Word of God says it, it will happen. Amen. Now, as we begin in chapter 15, we see that John is once again transported from this horrific scene to one of splendor and beauty as he's allowed to see heaven. Look at what heaven is like. He witnesses a great sign and a beautiful sea of glass. 15 verse 1, Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event or sign of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. So now we've got the final seven judgments, what we call the bowl judgments, and that makes 21 in all. The word wrath that John uses is the Greek word thumos, and you know what it means? Hot fury. Hot fury. The apostle begins with a stunning scene. He says, I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. Now, let's don't let the, the symbolism intimidate us. The Bible is the best interpreter of itself. When it talks about glass, to the ancients, glass represented permanence, permanence. Fire is representative of something purifying. And in this case, it's righteous judgment. So this glass-like sea of fire represents purifying judgment with eternity stretching beyond. John continues, and on it, the glass-like sea, stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. So here we've got all the people who said no to the mark, no to worshiping his image, no to worshiping him, and they stayed true to Jesus and likely were martyred. Here they are on that sea of glass with fire. They are the tribulation saints. They've refused to worship him. They have stayed true to Jesus through it all. And it says in verse 2, the second half, they were all holding harps. That's where we get angels flying around playing harps, right here. Angels aren't flying around playing harps. You're going to be given a harp. They were all holding harps that God had given them. And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And Moses and the Lamb both represent deliverance and salvation. And they sang. I want you to 
read this out loud with me, would you? Because here's what they're going to be singing. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Amen. Now we come to the seven bowls and the seven plagues. Following this glorious scene, the apostles' eyes are turned once again to approaching judgment, and this is the final seven judgments. Revelations 15, verse 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the testimony of the witness in heaven was open. Now, what in the world is the temple of the testimony of the witness? I've never heard of it until Revelation. What, what is it? Well, the temple of witness is more than likely where God remembers the death of the martyred tribulation saints. Remember how over and over again we have seen uh, under the altar those that have been martyred saying, how long, Lord? How long before you avenge us? How long before you deal with those who killed us and treated us so wrongly? And, and what did he say to them? Hang on, there's a few more that are going to be martyred, but their judgment day is coming. You know, God's judgment tarries, but it always arrives sooner or later, usually later. But it does arrive, and now it's arriving. The temple of the testimony of the witness in heaven was open. And I want you to note with me, church, how personally and how seriously God takes it when his children are afflicted or wronged by others. God takes it personally. How many of you have children in here? All right. Could you take it if you were, had to stand by and watch one of your children abused or wronged or beat up or afflicted in some way by somebody else? How hard would it be for you to sit there? You couldn't do it, could you? You would dive right in, wouldn't you? And so would I. But you know what Jesus said? You're imperfect. God is perfect. And God watches his children abused and wronged all the time. Right now, we have a genocide of Christians happening in the world under Islamic ISIS. It's a genuine genocide. Our government won't admit it, but it's happening. And Christians all over the world are being killed by radical Islamists. ISIS has made it their, their target to wipe out Christians, take them out of Iraq, take them out of Iran, take them any, out anywhere they can and, and establish an Islamic caliphate. And so there are thousands of believers being added to this number right now. Now, it says, out of the temple, that is the temple of witness, verse 6, came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure uh, bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Now, these are clearly very elevated angels, clad in white and gold, both symbols of purity. And they seem to pause before the temple. And look at verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. Picture this full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Seven angels step to the fore, and one of these cherubims steps forward and hands each one a bowl. And inside that bowl is the wrath of God. Cherubim, remember, 
are angelic beings involved in the worship and praise of God. And you know what Scripture tells us? Satan was once a cherub. Speaking of Satan, Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 28, 14 to 15, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And what was the iniquity? Pride. When he said, I will be like the Most High. And when he said that, God cast him down. He became a disembodied spirit, and all of that happened before we find him slithering up to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, when one of the cherubs hands the seven bowls of judgment to the seven angels, there is an immediate reaction. Verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple, that, the temple of witness, till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And so horrendous are these last seven plagues that the heavenly temple is filled with smoke, closing any access to this heavenly sanctuary as far as John's view is concerned until the seven plagues are fulfilled. This is it, folks, in this chapter. The final curtain is falling. The last actors on the stage of world history are about to witness the end. See, we're not in a in a world that's getting better in an evolutionary sense. We're not in a world that is, that is evolving. We're in a world that is devolving. And it's going to come under judgment. Now, chapter 16, verse 1. We begin chapter 16 now. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. In chapter 16, the seven angels with seven bowls are released from the throne room with the command to pour God's wrath out. Now, can I remind you of something? Because this is hard to read. How many of you find this hard to read? Hard to hear, right? Now, let's keep in mind, because the Bible's book of Revelation has already told us uh, before now that this is a Christ-rejecting generation involved in sorcery, witchcraft, drug abuse. As the judgments begin to fall, they blaspheme God in the midst of the judgments. They are wicked. Really, this generation of the, the Great Tribulation are almost daring God to judge them. And i got to be honest with you. Sometimes I feel that way about America. I mean, how much more can we do before God finally says, and I think already judgment has begun. I believe already there has been a turning over of America to their own will, to their own perversions, to their own way, because that's the way that God judges. But I believe there are even more severe judgments coming if America doesn't repent. We ought to look at these things and say, you cannot sin against God and get away with it. You cannot do the the things they do and expect God to sit there and do nothing. He will not. He's a God of love, but because he's a God of love, he's a God of holiness, and because he's a God of holiness, he's also a God who must judge. I fear for our country. I'm concerned about America, and if you're not 
I want you to come down after this is over, and I'm going to anoint you with enough oil to slide you into the next room and pray God touches you because you need to wake up. America is seemingly daring God, just like these people. Even with the judgments falling, they blaspheme him, they curse him, and they continue in their sorceries. So here's the seven angels with the seven bowls released from the throne room. The result of the first bowl is all I can get through tonight because it's hard to read. But I'm going to read it to you because God put it in his word. It says in verse 2, so the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl on the earth. And since you've got the verse up there, I want you to read it with me. And horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Wow. Man. Now, I can only assume these sores are like some kind of a skin cancer. The word, the English word horrible is translated from two Greek words, kakos and poneros, and they mean grievous and evil. So here suddenly is the inhabitants of the world, and when this bowl is poured out at the tail end of the tribulation period, they suddenly begin to break out in sores. How many of you are glad you're saved tonight? Say, well, why would God do that, Jeff? Why would God do that? I don't know. Go pray. Ask him. I don't know. But I do know an angel pours out this bowl. And I know it does happen. I think it's safe to say it doesn't go well with you if you turn against God and become his enemy. So I'm going to leave it there tonight. And we're going to pick it up with the second bowl next week because I don't think you can take any more and I don't think I can read any more. So let's stand up together, can we? Amen. Now, again, let me ask you, how many of you are glad you're saved? Do you see what the blood of Jesus protects you from, guards you from, delivers you from? And right now, there is another world that we can't see. And in that world is Christ and God and angels, cherubim, seraphim. And in that world is an enemy, Satan, demons. We can't see them. But thank God in the revelation, God removed the veil and let us look in. And we can see that there is a very, very active spiritual world. And that's where warfare takes place. So you know what? I think tonight, let's pray for lost souls. Let's pray for America. And let's pray that God will help us to bring in a great harvest ourselves of souls. How many of you feel the urgency I do going through this? Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's lift our hands to him and let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight. That these are sobering words, Lord. They're words that are hard to read. It's hard to imagine these things, Lord. But you, Jesus, gave it to John who wrote it down so that we would know what was coming upon this planet. So we pray, Lord, that you will help us tonight to keep these things in mind and not become numb or calloused 
or are so caught up in our own stuff that we forget to talk to somebody about Jesus, that we forget to witness for you, that we forget what we're really left on this planet to do. And Lord, we pray that you will give Turning Point a great harvest of souls in the weeks and months to come, a great harvest of souls. And we thank you for it, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you to grab the hand of the person next to you, would you? Uh, we don't do this often in church. I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but just reach across the aisle. And let's just take the person's hand next to you. And, and, and let's, I want you to pray for somebody you know that doesn't know the Lord. Amen. Just grab Jesus' hand. He's here. Just, you can do it. Let's, let's just pray for somebody we know. How many of you can say, I know somebody that's lost? Let's pray for them right now. Father, we just bring to you <clears throat> these people, these that we know are lost. And we give you their name. We bring them to you tonight and we pray that you will bring them under conviction of sin and the days and weeks and months to come. And they will come to Jesus. Lord, our spouse, our children, our parents, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. The Lord, there will come on this church an evangelistic fire to reach out and talk to somebody about Jesus. And we pray that, Lord, you will do a miracle and have great grace on many people by enabling them, empowering them to come to you. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.